Today we'll be reading Daniel 9, verses 2 through 8, and then 16 through 19. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made a confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our father, and all to the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verses 16 through 19. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing today? Good. Everybody on YouTube, thanks for being here with us and future YouTube. Um, This morning, so... We spent two weeks, the last two weeks, talking about some prophetic visions that Daniel had, and we're going to spend a couple more weeks talking about prophetic visions that Daniel had. Today, we are not. We're going to focus on uh, Daniel's prayer. So there are three verses at the end of uh, Daniel 9 that talk about the 70 weeks. So if you were hoping for that, just take that hope and push that down. But... If you have questions, um, for anybody that doesn't know, we do a thing called Friday Questions. If you have questions about anything, you can email questions at dbcc.com. We will talk a little bit about the 70 weeks, but today we're focused on the prayer. So what I want to do this morning is I want to start with a little exercise. So if you could all with me, we are going to try to put ourselves in the place of Daniel So Daniel has been in Babylon at this point somewhere. I've heard dates range between 55, 65, 68 years. 
So he's been in Babylon for more, the majority of his life. I mean, he was probably carried off sometime around 15. So he lives in Babylon. It's about 900 miles from Jerusalem. That would be like if we were here and you decided to walk to Boise, Idaho, right? So that's, that's where Daniel is compared to where he started. So we're going to try to put ourselves in the mind of Daniel and what he's going through right now. So what I'd like you to do, if you don't think you'll fall asleep, close your eyes with me. <clears throat> and we're just going to imagine ourselves in Daniel's place. So you live in a society that feels hostile to your beliefs. It feels like that they, that they don't just sin, but they revel in their sin and they hold it up as something to strive for. They, they thumb their nose at God, and they think that they're actually above God. They think they're smarter than God. And society is filled with selfishness and greed, where it's, it's fine to throw somebody under the bus to get what you want. A society that envies the person next to them. You, they're never satisfied with what they have. And every day, from every corner, it feels like you're being pressured on every side to conform to that society. All right, are you in that place? Did you imagine this? Yeah? Right? Kind of feels like we're in Babylon right now. When you, when you, when you describe what Daniel was going through, you're like, you know, I think I can relate. I think, I, I think I'm able to put myself in his shoes. And that is because... From the beginning, God's people have always been a minority of the people. Even in Israel, in Israel they weren't the minority, but Israel was surrounded by nations on every side that vastly outnumbered them. When they were taken into exile, they were spread throughout Syria, Egypt, Babylon, and they felt alone at times. <clears throat> and when Jesus came... And, and created the church. The church was spread out through all the world, but we are vastly outnumbered by people who don't think what we think. And so in, second, in 1 Peter 2.1, uh, there's various, the various translations describe Christians by some of these words. Foreigners, exiles, strangers, pilgrims, it says we're called to be in the world, but we're not of the world. And so there's always this sense of what I see around me is wrong. What I see around me is not how it's supposed to be. And so they were brought to Babylon as captives. They were taken from their land. And Babylon's purpose, their sole purpose in bringing them to Babylon was to strip everything that they were and make them like Babylon. And so we find Daniel somewhere between 50 and 70 years after being brought to Babylon. And you can imagine, because we've already established that we can relate to what Daniel's going through, that it's easy, it's easy to compromise your beliefs from the pressures around us. It's easy to want to say, well, 
I can relent in this area because I won't get grief for it. Or I can, I can bend a little bit here because then I won't have to face this trouble. And so it's, it's, it's easy to understand the pressures that he faces because they're the pressures that we face. And so what I want to do in this is we're going to look at Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 because this prayer gives us an insight into what gave Daniel hope and how he saw God in that situation. And so if Daniel can have hope, because look, we can relate to what Daniel's feeling, but never, nobody's ever tried to throw us into a fire before, and nobody's ever tried to throw us to be eaten by lions alive. So maybe there was a little amped up pressure on him. I mean, nobody tried to make a law decreeing that you could just be killed. So we want to look at, at how Daniel faced these things. And so our thesis statement for today Towards the end of Daniel's life, having spent over 50 years in an evil and hostile land, he sees visions of world-conquering nations and is shaken to his core. And he does the only thing that he can, and then he turns towards God in humble yet bold prayer. So let's start there, and let's pray. Lord, we just ask that you would be with us as we dig into your word this morning. Help me to be a good steward of your word. Help me to speak your truth in this time. Help us to know you better from your word. Help us to know to trust everything that you are, your faithfulness, your love, and your grace, and your mercy to us. Help us to know you from your word. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Which leads me to our first fill-in-the-blank. I'm just going to give it to you right off the bat. Our first fill-in-the-blank is, in times of trouble, go to his word. In this moment in time, Daniel was probably feeling a little down. He was at a loss. He was, as, as Ray said, reaching the finish line. He's coming to the end of his race, and he's thinking, God, I don't want to, you know, he's probably thinking, God, I don't want to die in Babylon. And so he's looking for hope, and he goes to the one place that he knows there is hope. He goes to God's Word. So chapter, verse 2, it says, he read in the scrolls of Isaiah, or not Isaiah, he read in the scrolls of Jeremiah. He read in the scrolls of Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah, he found a promise from God that the people would be taken into exile for 70 years, and he's coming up on that 70-year mark, and he said, I know God, and I know God's faithful, and I find hope in this, and so he turns to God in prayer. So, Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is one of my favorite psalms. It is 176 verses long. It's the longest book in the Bible, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and each, and in this 176 verses, he breaks it down into 22 sections, each section being eight verses long. One section for each, ver, or for each letter of the Hebrew Bible. And so, if you look at these 176 verses, 171 of them mention God's Word. 
This, this chapter of the Bible is steeped, like the author of this, and, and some people think it's a, it's a collection that was put together from multiple authors. It is this rich text that repeatedly talks about the author's delight in the law. And so when you read this and you read law, for us, you can just substitute the word Bible because that's what they called their Bible in the day. It was the law. And the Bible is our light in a dark world. It is our direct connection to God's will. And it gives us life. Um, Psalm 19, 92 through 93 says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And I, I imagine Daniel, when he's feeling low, he goes to God's word because that's where his life is. Which is our next fill in the blank. Did I already say it? God's, his word is our life. Psalm 119, 131, it says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Right? That's, that's kind of an odd way to say that. And so, but what it reminded me of, has anybody heard of Pavlov's dog? You guys know what Pavlov's dog is? For anybody that doesn't, um, it is this study that he did where he noticed that dogs would pant and drool when food was shown to them. And so he did this study where he would ring a bell and then give them food immediately afterwards. And over time, just the sound of the bell made the dogs pant and drool, even if they didn't get food, because it becomes so associated with their mind. And so when I look at this verse, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments, right? I want to be Pavlog's dog for the word. I just want to hear somebody mention the word of God and be like, yes, yes, right? When, when I give, when I pull out the pepperoni in our house and our dogs are like, oh, just tell me what to do. You know, we, get, you know, we taught them bang and we taught them roll over and we taught them all this stuff. Lucy, our dog, she's like, she's like, I will do anything. Give me the pepperoni, Right? That's what I want to be like with the Word of God. I, I want to hear it. I want to be like, yes, I need that. And so, so in, in Hebrews 4.12, it says that the Word is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit. And you feel that sometimes, right? When you hear a scripture read or you hear something in God's Word, and it feels almost like a physical blow, like that is something that I just heard. That is something powerful. And it cuts through, right? In, in worship sometimes, you hear a scripture, you hear a word, and it cuts through our selfishness and our distractedness, and it will hit you like a ton of bricks. When, when we look back at the Israelites, right, they're, they're about to go into the promised land, and so Deuteronomy is basically a recap of everything that they went to right before they go into the promised land. And he's doing this because this was 40 years after their initial spies going into the promised land. And so you have, you have this group of people who grew up, they weren't alive when all this stuff happened. 
Many of them weren't alive when they came out of Egypt. And so one of God's things that he says is teach these things to your children. And so I, I just want to read uh, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. God was telling them this word, it needs to be every single part of your life. And to an extent, they took this seriously, and you can still get them today. There's a little thing, and I, I forgot what they're called. It starts with an M. But what, what is it? Mezuzah? 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 And, and it's this little thing, and sometimes it has carved into it Scripture, and they'll put it on the doorpost. Sometimes it's a little thing that opens up, and it'll have a little paper with stuff written on it. And they would put that on their doorpost, and they wanted it to be so ingrained in them. And so, so think, about, think about this nation, this Israelites that were about to go in the promised land. God, he, he says in Deuteronomy, he's like, look, I'm about to take you into the promised land. I have kept you these 40 years in the desert. It says, your clothes didn't wear out. It said, your shoes didn't wear out. Now, for the fashion conscious, that was probably really hard, wearing the same shirt for 40 years. But think about like somebody, you know, they weren't born when they came out of Egypt. Maybe they're in their late 30s. Maybe they're close to 40. And they go into the promised land, and like a month later, they catch their shirt on a branch and get a hole in it, and they're like, what happened? They're like, clothes these days, they're made so poorly. In my day, I had the same shirt for 40 years. You know what, last night they didn't laugh at that, and I kept it in anyway. But his word, this is your next fill in the blank, his word reveals his faithfulness. His word reveals his faithfulness. And I have some reference scripture there, and one of them is 2 Timothy 2.31. No, that is an extra revelation from God that I got. 2 Timothy 2.31 doesn't exist. So you just cross that out. It should say 13. It say 13. 2 Timothy 2.13. Uh, Isaiah 25.1 says, I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. That gives me a lot of comfort. Plans of old. It says that God knew us before the foundations of the world, that he knit us together in our mother's womb, and he has a plan for us. And this was especially helpful for us because in 2008, when the economy collapsed, I didn't lose my job. I, I take that back. I wasn't fired from my job. They just quit paying me, and they stopped answering the phone. And so it was like, well, this is unfortunate. Um, and we lost everything. We lost our house. I had to uh, go out and find a job because the, the job that I was in had been going downhill for a while. 
where it was like sometimes I would get paid on time and sometimes I would get paid a week late, sometimes I would get paid two weeks late. And so, so when that happened, there was this sense of I don't know what to do. But there was no fear for myself and Amanda, not because we're so great or have so much faith, but because God had been so faithful to us up to that point to take care of us that I wasn't concerned. We lost our house in that time. And right about that time, the pastor at the church that I was going to, he said, Luke, I really want to rent a house. I want to buy a house and rent it. Would you be interested in renting a house? And I said, as a matter of fact, I am open to moving right now. <laughs> and he said, look, I want to buy this house. I want to rent it. I don't want to go look for it. Will you go find a house that you like? And just let me know when you find a good one, and I'll go take a look at it. And I was like, yeah, okay. And so not long before this, we had found this house that we loved. It was like the perfect layout. We liked it. We put a deposit down on it, which we then lost when I lost my job. And then we found this house that was the exact model of what we wanted. And we said, hey, we found a house that's pretty nice. And he said, okay, I'll buy that one. And so not only did we immediately have a house that we didn't have to search for, but the rent for the new house was $400 less than what we were paying for the house that we had just lost, which was good because the job I had to take, I had to take a third pay cut in the new job. And so he was faithful. That whole year, one thing after another happened that year, financially, that was a hardship for us. But we never went without we always had food. We always had what we needed. God was faithful to provide for us. And we knew that because we knew God's word. God's word tells us of his faithfulness. So when times were tough, I could say, I know God is faithful. And that brings us to our next point. His word reveals his promises. So his word reveals his faithfulness and his word reveals his promises. And maybe that should have gone the other way because God promises things and then he's faithful to provide. But that's the way I wrote it, so. I have more references on there for you and I would encourage you to read them. But it was these promises that God had made to Daniel and to the nation of Israel that was the basis of everything that he believed. God's word is the basis of everything that we believe. If I skip that step, everything else falls apart. If I don't know God's promises for me, everything else comes into question. His promises show that we can trust him, that we can understand his love for us and see how mighty he is. Right? So that's, that's verse 2. So verse 2, Daniel goes to the word to know God's will for him. Verse 3, we must go to the Lord wholeheartedly. And that's, that's what we're going to look at in verse 3. It's hard to spell, so there it is right there. 
It's, it, it says in this verse that Daniel turned towards the Lord and that he was, that he was all in on his, quest, on his question, on his, on, his, on his prayer to God. And so we're just going to take one more little exercise here. Imagine we are in the hottest Babylon nightclub. Le Babylon, right? We're in the hottest Babylon nightclub. We're two Israelites in a foreign land. And one Israelite turns to the other and he said, yeah, I used to live in Israel. He's like, I did too. He's like, yeah, I was always scared of Babylon. They're actually pretty nice people. They explained to me how there's actually really a ton of gods and I can just kind of pick whichever one I want, right? I got this t-shirt, it's really cool. And, uh, you know, the other guy's like, yeah, but, but what about Yahweh? And he's like, yeah, he's all right, I guess. But, you know, we're in Babylon now. And, you know, Yahweh seems so old-fashioned, so 500 B.C. It's like, there's no rules here. I can be anything I want. Now, of course, that is completely fictional. There was no lay Babylon. But, but what we do know is that in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a, he was in Babylon at the same time as Daniel, except that where Daniel was in the palace, because, because they would take the elite class in Israel and they would train them up in the palace, everybody else basically lived in the slums. And so it says Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1, it says he was sitting on the riverbank in Babylon when God calls him. And so if you read the book of Ezekiel, that is God calling out to the people, not only who are still in Jerusalem, but who are also taken captive in Babylon, because there were still some people in Jerusalem. And it is some of the harshest words that God has for his people, because he's taken them into exile, he's stripped them of what they have, and they're still like, yeah, I got it pretty good here, and I'm just going to ride this out. And so we know that while Daniel is faithful, many in Babylon are just becoming Babylon. People went to Egypt, people went to Assyria, they were scattered everywhere, and many of them just went to whatever kingdom they were. And so the thing is, this is your next fill in the blank, God is not a backup plan. God's not my backup plan for life. This wasn't... Um, I have two references there, James 1, 6 through 8, and James 4, 8. And both of these talk about the double-minded man. And in James 1, 6 through 8, it talks about how the double-minded man is tossed to and fro. And he goes wherever society pushes him. And he shouldn't expect anything from God because he's looking this way and he's looking that way. But James 4, 8 is a call for the double-minded man to return to God. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. And so if we got like this split plan, you know, when Daniel turns toward the Lord, this wasn't like a side eye, like, hey, God, 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 God. You know, it wasn't like a few uttered words before he went to sleep. It wasn't step three of his five-part plan to get back to Israel. When it says, I turned towards the Lord, that literally translates to, I gave my face. 
when Daniel turns toward the Lord, it is a rejection of everything else around him. It's a rejection of every shiny, flashy promise that society has given him. And he says, nothing else matters but you, God. He comes with fasting and sackcloth and ashes because this was his petition. This was his plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. Everything, his plan was God because he knew his faithfulness and he knew his promises. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so the question is, if we're in times of trouble, are there already 10? Okay. Um, the question is, are we seeking God with everything for our answers? Or are we seeking God at all? He turns wholeheartedly because he knows who God is. And that's your next fill in the blank. We must understand who God is. He's going to start his... So verse 2, he goes to the Word. Verse 3, he turns wholeheartedly to the Lord. Verse 4, four he addresses God. And he addresses God using two different names. The first name he uses is Adonai. No, that's not true. The first name he uses is Yahweh. The second name he uses is Adonai. The first name he uses is Yahweh. And so he uses Yahweh because this was God's personal name to them. This, was, this represented their relationship with God. He was personal to them. And so your next fill in the blank is... He is our Father. He was the Father of the nation of Israel, and He tells us that He is our Father. In John 1, 3, 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given us. And another translation of that says, See what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us. Right? When you, if you're like a sweets person and you like make your own cupcakes or something, you don't just like put a little icing on there. You lavish it. You just lavish that cupcake with icing. And if you're a child, you eat all of the icing off of it and you throw the cupcake away. <laughs> but it says that God lavished us with love that we should be called the children of God. And I, I, I love Luke 12, 32. As Jesus is teaching, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God doesn't look at us like a problem. God doesn't look at us like an annoyance. In this verse, he says, Fear not, little flock. I am going to take care of you. When Jesus talks to God, he calls him Abba, Father. And Abba is like this familial relationship. It's, it's somewhere between like an old-fashioned Papa and Daddy, right? It's, it's a child speaking to their father. But that isn't all who God is. So he calls him Yahweh, 
And next he calls him Adonai. And so Adonai is the name which represents God's authority and sovereignty. God was the creator of all things, and he was the owner of all things. And he says, God, you are my father, and you are also above all. So back in, back in chapter 2, when God gave a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he has this statue, and he's like, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the top of this statue made of gold. Your kingdom is established right now. It is greater than every other kingdom. And then in his dream, this hand takes this rock and smashes the top of that statue to say, your kingdom is the greatest, but I am above you. My kingdom is above everything. And that's how Daniel sees God. He sees him as the one above all. When Moses is going to go to Pharaoh and he says, who am I going to say sent me? God tells him, you tell him, I am sent you. That's a pretty bold claim, right? He's, he's like, I don't have to describe myself. I don't have to. I am. And that, that's your next fill in the blank. God is the I am. If I look, if, if I had all the money in the world, if I had all the power in the world, if I possessed everything my heart desired, if there was nothing else left to want, but I didn't have God, I have nothing, and I am nothing. What, what are my accomplishments to the I am, who was and is and is to come? Everything I have, everything I am, everything that I have collected and established, he spoke it into existence, right? Try to speak obedience into existence into your kids when they're little. Does it happen? No. But when God speaks, something happens. There's no like, oh, I don't know, God. No, it happens. He is the I am. And when I understand who God is, I have one thing that I can give. And that is what Daniel did. He gave the only thing he could. And this is your next phone in the blank. We have to come with an attitude of surrender. I have this great C.S. Lewis quote, and I was supposed to put it up there after last night, and I forgot. So I'm just going to read it to you. And I'll hold it up for you so you can see it. It's at the top. This C.S. Lewis quote, it says, We must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Yeah, you're like, oh, that hurt. That hurt. Because what should be in me is faithfulness and joy and love and acceptance. And a lot of times what is in me is fear and anger and frustration and envy. And when I come before God, 
I'm not hiding that. Like, have you ever played hide and seek with a little kid? They're like, ha ha, find me. You can't see me. Right? And then you're like, oh, I wonder where they are. I don't know where they could be. And they're like, <laughs> right? That's us trying to hide our sin from God. I'm like, oh, I didn't know you were coming, God. I hadn't had a chance to pick up yet. It's, it's, like, we're, it's like we're children. And, and when I see who God is, when I hold myself up to God, I see what a wretched man I am. And this is, I'm not, I'm not saying this to be like, oh, you should feel terrible. What I'm saying is this is a natural, this is your next fill in the blank. This is the natural response to God's glory. When Isaiah saw God for the first time, and in Isaiah 6, it gives us this illustration of Isaiah seeing God. And Isaiah's response is, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And there was nothing else left for him. When Job, Job is about him and his three friends arguing about who was right about this thing. But when God answers Job, what is Job's response? He says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. And Daniel's prayer was one of confession. He saw the glory of God. He said, I'm not going to persuade God by my righteousness. And so verses, verses uh, let me see, I have it written down here. Verses 5 through 14 is Daniel recounting Israel's failures. And he says six things here of what Israel had done. He said they had sinned, they had done wrong, they had rebelled, they had turned away, they had not listened. And number six on my paper said they had been widget, which I think was autocorrected from wicked, is my guess. They had been wicked. I don't think they had been widget. But Daniel understands, and he calls God righteous. He calls God righteous in throughout this prayer. And so what does righteousness mean, right? Holy is what God is. But the Bible has a specific definition for righteousness. And righteousness is in right standing between two people. It's in relationship. And God is, Daniel says that God is righteous because God was right in what he did. So imagine you're in a courtroom and there's a judge and there's somebody, let's say, who is drunk driving and they crashed and they hurt some people. If the judge said, you know, I can tell that you had just made a mistake and that you feel really bad about it. So go ahead and go and don't do it again. Is that righteousness? Is that justice? God has to be righteous. God, God is righteousness. It, it's who he is. And so Daniel understands God's judgment on Israel, and he says that he is righteous. 
But if we look at ourselves as parents, our, pa- our, our role as parents is not just to discipline, but it's also to encourage and to build up and to restore and to help our children become who they need to be. And so God is not just the punisher in chief because he also cares for us and his desire is to bring us back to him. And this is your next fill in the blank. Our surrender, that is what brings salvation. Our surrender brings salvation. The surrender is not just so God can say, bad, bad, bad. But that, that's how a lot of people look at God. That's how many Christians look at God. God just up there, bad, bad. Rule number six, bad. Because our repentance is met by God's forgiveness. And he is faithful to forgive. When the Bible talks about salvation, this is what it says. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's desire is not to punish. God's desire is to restore. God's judgment always comes with a way forward and with a way for redemption because he wants us to be with him. So, so, Daniel goes to the word. He turns wholly to God. He confesses his own faults and sins. And then what he does is he asks in line with God's will. So that's your next fill in the blank. We must ask in line with his will. There are things that my kids just know because they know me. There are certain things that they are just allowed to do. They don't have to ask me if they can use the bathroom, right? That would be awkward. It would be like, no, just, use the ba- you just use it. Just use it. It's, that's just okay. Everything is okay with that. And that seems... That seems silly, but that goes back to step one. If I don't know what God says about me, if I don't know what God's promises for me are, if I don't know God's will for me, then I don't even know what to ask for. That's like like I'm trying to call the insurance company. Hello, I pressed six. I don't know if I was supposed to press nine. Is this something you guys cover? Am I on my own for this? God, is this in my warranty? I, I... If I don't know God's word, I'm just shooting in the dark. I'm blowing dust in the wind. We ask, this is your next fill in the blank, we ask according to his promises. When we ask God's promises, the answer is yes. And so God gave Daniel a specific promise. He gave Israel a specific promise, exile for 70 years And as they came to the end of that time, Daniel calls on God to remember his promise. He calls him the God of their exodus. He he calls back 
to God bringing them out of Egypt because that was who God was. He said, God, you are the God who saved us. You are the God of our exodus. You are our father. You told us 70 years, and now I'm calling on you. He knew God was faithful to his word. And he says, not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And so what I want to clarify, I'm not giving you the secret words to say to get what you want from God. Right? That's not what this is. What this is, is as I walk through life, I can have hope and I can have joy because I know who God is and I know his plans for me. I know that Romans 8.28 says, God works all things for the good of those who love him. And so I'm going to give you your next two fill-in-the-blanks together. The first is, God's answers are not always our answers. And that goes right along with your next fill-in-the-blank, because God's answers are what we need. We started coming here 12 years ago. I remember it was on Memorial Day weekend, 2012. And as we started coming to the church, we lived in Avondale, which is like a 30-minute drive with no traffic. And so we came to Game of Life, and we would drive 30 minutes every Tuesday night to go to Game of Life. And as we got involved with the church, we said, this is what God has for us. I want to be near the church because I want to do things for the church. I want to be in the church. I want to be a part of the body of God. And so we began looking for a place to live over here. But this was just four years after everything crashed, after we lost our house, after our credit went. So we tried to find an apartment. We tried to find anything we could so that we could move closer to the church. We looked at two-bedroom apartments thinking, well, the kids are young. Maybe they could share an apartment. You know, what can we afford? We had a, we had a certain budget, and we had no credit. So it was like, how can we get near the church? And we tried, and we tried, and we came up with nothing. And so I talked with, with Scott, and he said, he said, look, if God wants you here, he will make a way for you to be here. And so I said, you know what? You're right. I have been trying to do this on my own. God, I surrender. If you want this to happen, you're going to have to make this happen. And the next day, my boss called me, and he said, hey, Luke, my brother has a house. Would you be interested in renting that? And I said, as a matter of fact, I am open to moving right now. And he said, well, here's how much the house is. And I said, I can't afford that. And he said, okay, all right. And then a week later, he called me, and he said, well, what can you afford? And I said, well, I can afford this much. And he said, what if I rented the house to you for that? And I said, I accept. I accept your offer. And that, that house is like a mile and a half from here. So I was looking for a thousand square foot apartment, and I was going to try to cram all of us into some apartment. 
And the house that we ended up renting was a 2,400 square foot, two-story house on a third of an acre. So God's, God's answer to my prayer was not the answer that I wanted, but it was the answer that I needed. Sometimes that's a good answer. Sometimes uh, maybe not so good in our eyes. Jesus, in the garden, prayed to God. And he said, Lord, if possible, take this cup from me. Because he knew what he was about to suffer. And he knew what he was about to go through. And he followed that up with, but not my will, your will. And God's will for him was for him to suffer so that better could come from it. When God answers Daniel in this time, he sends an angel to him and he says, not necessarily what Daniel wanted to hear. He didn't say, pack your bags, Daniel, we're going to Israel. As far as we know, Daniel died in Babylon. We don't have a record that Daniel ever went back. But God did bring Israel back to Israel. People to land, right? Um, but what he did tell Daniel, he spoke of the one to come. He spoke of Jesus coming. And so he said, Daniel, you're concerned with your salvation right now. You're concerned about your problems right now. But I am also concerned about the salvation of everything and everyone. And he spoke to Daniel of this promise that was yet to come. Now, as we, as we look at the book of Daniel, there's something strange about the book of Daniel. Weird stuff happens in Daniel, right? Kings have visions from God. Multiple kings have vision from God. Daniel chapter 4 is written by a Babylon king. That stuff doesn't happen elsewhere in the Bible. There's weird things going on in the book of Daniel in Babylon. And I'll tell you why. We said Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. He was in Babylon at the same time. In Ezekiel 1, it says Ezekiel is sitting on the riverbank and he sees this vision of God come to him. Right? He sees this vision of God not just like he's in a vision and there's God. Like he sees this vision of God coming to him. And when I say a vision of God, I mean God was there. And, and what it describes is these four creatures with wings and four faces and these wheels with wheels inside of wheels. And above the four creatures is an expanse and there's a throne and there's somebody sitting on the throne. God appears... To Ezekiel. It is a very distinctive image that only appears one other place, and that's Ezekiel 11. In, well, 8 through 11. In those chapters, God gives Ezekiel a vision of the temple back in Jerusalem. And in the temple, there are idols set up all over. They are worshiping these idols. They're sacrificing to these idols in the temple. And so God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. 
But the tabernacle and after that the temple was this special place where when they, when they, not coronated, what's the word? When they, um, no, when they built the temple and dedicated, yeah, dedicated, right? When they dedicated the temple, they saw the Spirit of God come down into the temple. It said it was filled with smoke. And, and, and they saw a physical manifestation of God in that temple. God wanted to be with his people. And even though God is omnipresent, this temple was a special place that he dwelled with the people. And in this vision in Ezekiel 11, he sees that same image of God rise up from the temple and leave the temple. God left the place that they had built for him because of the wickedness that was happening in that temple. But God didn't go back up to heaven. It said he went east. You know who was east? Babylon, Ezekiel. God rises up out of the temple and comes east to Babylon. So God didn't send the people into Babylon like, you've been bad, you go to your room for 70 years, and then you can come back. God left his temple and went into exile with the people of Israel. In, in Peter, when it talks about us being exiles, right? It talks about us being exiles because God created the garden, God created us in the garden. We were meant to dwell in the garden with him. We were meant to be together. And the sin that happened ripped us apart from God and separated us from God, and we were sent into exile outside of the garden. And what did God do? God in heaven, it said, he got up off his throne. He took off his glory and he came into exile with us in body as Jesus Christ. God came into exile with us. He didn't send us here to be on our own. He didn't send us to find our own way. But in a dark and terrible world, God was with us. He lived the life we live. He suffered as we suffer. He had pain as we have pain, and he paid the price that we could not pay so that we could be restored to him. And so if you feel hopeless, if you are struggling, if you are in pain, if you are suffering, God is with you. And you can be you can try to fit in with society and try to make it on your own, or you can turn wholeheartedly to God and say, God, you are faithful, you are just, you have promises for me, and I will follow you. It feels hard when we face big challenges in our life, but Daniel didn't go right to the lion's den. He first said no to eating some food that he felt defiled. And so some of us, we face big problems and we're like, I could never handle that. Well, don't worry about that for now. Say no to the next time you're offered food that defiles you. 
and I, I don't mean like real food, right? You get what I mean, metaphorically. <laughs> and trust in the God who's there with you. And if you don't know that God this morning and you want to know him, then I would love to pray with you that you could know that God. Right? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are to us. We thank you for your faithfulness and for your kindness, for your love and for your mercy. We thank you that you didn't send us to a dark place alone, but you gave us your word that we could know you, that we could know your promises, that we could know your will for our life. But beyond that, you came here with us. You suffered with us. You hurt with us. You cried for us. And you paid the price for us that we could be restored to you. Lord, we thank you. It is nothing that we could ever earn or pay back. It is something that we surrender to, God. We thank you for who you are. And we ask in the name of Jesus that you would lead us. And everyone said, amen. See you guys next week. God bless you.